I wonder if you can think back with me to 365 days ago. Just one year ago, on December 27, 2019, can you kind of put yourself back in that moment? It was the end of 2019, and the year 2020 was being hyped as the year of vision. It was a new decade, a new era. There was so much potential that was coming our way. On December 27, 2019, the coronavirus was a whisper the world away. Kobe Bryant was still alive. George Floyd was still breathing. We didn't have presidential nominees, and you could buy as much toilet paper as you wanted. And probably like many years prior, a large percentage of people were gearing up for the new year, and they were starting to make resolutions. And now, The whole year of 2020 was unlike a year that we've seen in a really long time, if ever. But again, we find ourselves at the end of a year looking forward to the next one. And research shows that as many as 50% of adult Americans will make a resolution to start the new year. And that number surveyed this year has actually risen to 75%. As people look forward to 2021 to get out of the year 2020, that means an estimated 188.9 million adult Americans have made a decision to learn something new, make a lifestyle change, or set a personal goal in an effort to have more success in their life, to be a better version of themselves next year. Why? Because everybody wants to have or be a success. Nobody wants to have or be a failure. Which is kind of ironic because of those 188.9 million people, only about 10% will last more than three months with their resolutions. And an even smaller percentage will make it through the next year with those resolutions intact. But nevertheless, the self-help industry will boom with books and podcasts and tips and tricks on how to be successful on whatever your goals are. Want to improve your health? Follow these five steps. Want to make more money? Start these six habits today. Are you ready for the best relationships you've ever had? Follow us to learn the seven secrets. And so on and so on and so on. There will be experts from all over who are shouting at you, hey, I can help make you a success. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad idea to set some goals for yourself. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to go out and find some people who are experts in that area of your goal so that they can help you achieve that goal. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I want us to see in God's word today That if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, there are some resolutions you should make that have nothing to do with what the world says about success. And there are some experts you should follow that aren't releasing a book this year and aren't asking you to like and subscribe to their channel. One of those experts is the Apostle Paul. So let's open our Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians is a rich 
rich book full of insight and perspective on how to have success that transcends this life into the next. And we're going to camp out in chapter 2, but I want you to first see Paul's impressive worldly resume of success in chapter 3. Here's kind of the context for why he lists his credentials. Paul is rebuking some legalistic religious leaders who are preaching a false doctrine to the church in Philippi. And as a way to emphasize his authority to rebuke them, he lists out his credentials that would have made the Pope jealous. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. He says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was born in the right family, in the right place, went to the right school, had the right friends, did the right job, and lived the right life. He was a Jewish superstar. He would have been the most followed person on social media. Everyone would have looked at him in that culture and said, he's the top dog. And then Paul met someone named Jesus. And everything changed for him. Look at verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I love the language Paul uses in thinking about a definition of success. Paul uses accounting terms. There will be countless meetings held over the next few days as businesses draw to an end of their fiscal year and they will say, hey, uh, how did we do in the gains and losses? And this past year, more than ever, most places will just be concerned. Did we keep the losses to a minimum? Can we at least keep some things out of that column? And here's Paul with everything the world would have said is an invaluable asset. His rituals, his race, his rank, his tradition, his sincerity, his legalistic righteousness. He takes all of that and he moves it over into the loss column. Because Paul didn't see it as just some good things and then Jesus was better. No. When he met Jesus, it redefined success for him. And he was able to see that all of those things were actually a hindrance to him. Because it gave him a false sense of salvation. It gave him a sense that he had somehow achieved eternal success with God through all of his actions. He counts it all as loss. As followers of Christ, we need to understand that the true success in our life does not depend on our actions or our accomplishments, but rather the accomplished action of Jesus Christ on the cross. And while that is our foundation, Jesus' work on the cross cannot be our rationalization to not find success as Jesus defines it in this life. See, salvation is not your golden ticket punch that got you on the train so now you can just coast into eternity not having to do anything. No, the fact that you and I are alive and breathing right now is because God has a plan for you to have success in this life and in the next. But if we're going to do that, we have to redefine that word success as it pertains to this life. We need to view success through the perspective 
of Jesus Christ. And like most things, when it comes to how Jesus sees them, it's going to be completely countercultural. That's what Paul discovered. It changed the direction of his life and what he pursued. And from then on, his mission was to help others come to that same realization. So in this letter to his Philippian friends, he exhorts them to redefine success through the perspective of Jesus. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Paul is about to get into a redefinition of success, but before he does that, he makes a plea to his friends in the church at Philippi. Be unified. Stay together. Do not let anything come between you that it would hinder your gospel service. See, he's not asking an open-ended question. He's asking a rhetorical question. Paul knew the answer, and the reason he stated it is that he wanted to make sure that they knew the answer. Of course, there is encouragement in Christ. Of course, there is comfort from love, participation, fellowship with the Spirit, affection, and sympathy. So because there are all of those things, complete my joy, he says. He puts in his own personal plea, complete my joy, be of the same mind. Think alike. He's going to give a practical way of doing that in chapter 4, verse 8. This is what that verse says. Philippians 4, 8 says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And if we do that, we will be of the same mind. If we all decided that that's what we're going to think about, we would have the same mind. And he says, have the same love. That's agape, Christ's love. There are no partialities. Love each, each other the same way. There is no difference. And he says, be in full accord and of one mind. Another translation says this, intent on one purpose. As a church, we are focused intensely on making disciples. And that might look like a lot of different things across the landscape of Gospel City Church, but there are some things that it doesn't look like. We're not intent on building for the purpose of buildings. We're intent on building disciple-making factories because we are intent on the purpose of making disciples. We are not intent on church planting so that we can add it to an annual report and pat ourselves on the back. We are intent on making church planting churches go forth so that we would be intent on the purpose of making disciples across our whole community. And we are not intent on broadcasting this service so that we would be intent on the purpose of getting more likes and subscribers and feel more important in the digital world. Rather, we are intent on broadcasting the gospel because our mission is to make disciples of every nation and every tribe and every tongue. We are intent on one purpose. So you want to complete the joy of every pastor, director, and ministry leader at Gospel City Church? Do you want to make the countless hours of service and sacrifice that go into and outside of this place worth it? Complete the joy by being of the same mind, have the same love, 
being full accord together and intent on one purpose. Make disciples. And now with that as the motivation, Paul then implores both us and the church in Philippi to redefine how to have success in this life and the life to come. Read with me in verse 3 of Philippians 2. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul is giving us the Jesus definition of success, and it's completely counterintuitive. Worldly success is ensuring your needs are taken care of, your comfort is provided, and your name is known. Jesus' success is ensuring the needs of others are taken care of, and you would wave the banner of other people's names rather than your own. He uses the words, have this mind among yourselves, again referring to the unity of thinking, meaning because you are in Christ Jesus, you should think this way. And then he gives the example of how Jesus did this himself as a human. Paul is about to describe how Jesus executed the most successful rescue mission in all of history. And these verses were actually penned as a song or a poem. And they would have been used in worship in the early church. I love that because what happens when Jesus changes your life Worship is the inevitable response. Verse five, verses 5 through 11 is Paul's song of worship, which stirs our hearts to exalt Jesus from the depths of ourselves because he's changing something inside of us that has been there since our conception. This sin nature that from day one we have screamed, me, my, mine. And then Jesus comes and he says, you, them, everyone. And this is so radical because you have to understand that Jesus didn't need to redefine success for himself. This wasn't for him. This was for us. Look at verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, though he was in the form of God. Now, the word form is not a great translation. It's actually a really hard word to translate into English. In the Greek, it is morphe. And it's a technical term that was used a lot in Greek philosophy. And a more specific definition would be the outward manifestation of an inward reality. And why this is important is because uh, morphe never changes. It's what you always are. It cannot change. Whereas schema means a form that changes. So you can think of your morphe as human. You have been and always will be human as long as you are alive. You are human. But your schema is changing constantly. You were an infant and a child and an adult. And that changes all throughout your life. So when we say that Jesus was morphetheu, in the form of God, it's significant because it helps us understand that Jesus is the manifestation of the real God. He is completely God. And he has access to everything that God has access to, in meaning Jesus is self-sufficient. He does not need anything. There was no lack that he felt. 
And that makes all the difference when we think about Jesus coming and redefining success. Keep reading. He says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Something to hold tightly to for personal gain. Jesus didn't view his equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form, again, morphe, not schema, the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Here's why we need to understand that. Because Jesus was not 50-50 God and man. He wasn't 99% God and 1% man, like God with a skin suit on, kind of pretending to be human. Nor was he like 99% man, which is this like kind of Jedi sense about who God was that he had access to the Father like no one else had. No, this is an important part of our theology that we need to understand that the Savior you just spent a day celebrating came to earth and was fully human while remaining fully God. He emptied himself of the privileges and the rights that he had in heaven to come as not just a human, but the word is servant, better translated as a slave. He came as a a baby laid in a feeding trough, born to a poor young couple on the wrong side of the tracks. Why? Because he wanted to show you something about the heart of God, the manifestation of who God is. And it's going to change the way we see success in life. It's found in serving others. And how, how can we know this? We see Jesus all the time take the posture of a servant rather than a king, which he was worthy of. In John chapter 13, we watch Jesus hours before his ultimate service on the cross remove himself from the place of honor at a dinner table because he saw the need to wash his disciples' feet. And so he gets down on his hands and his knees like a servant and begins to scrub the dirt and the grime off the feet of the men whose sins he was going to be paying for. And then he says to them in John 13, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus is redefining success in this life by giving us a resolution that we all need to make. Choose service over selfishness. One of the resolutions every follower of Jesus needs to make this year and every year is this. I will choose service over selfishness. Success looks like service in the eyes of Jesus. And not just service, but sacrifice. Look back at Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Most scholars note that the credence of this poem that Paul is writing um, follows a four-line poem. And then Paul breaks that and adds a fifth-line to make an exclamation point on even death on a cross. In that period of time and in that culture, crucifixion was the most humiliating and dishonoring way to be killed. 
It was reserved for the lowest of the low. In fact, it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen for anything other than high treason against the Roman Empire. But notice that Paul notes that Jesus humbled himself. The cross may have been humiliating, but Jesus chose to be humble. Throughout this year and everything that has happened, I've heard people say time and time again, man, 2020 was so humbling. I've been so humbled this year. And I get what they're trying to say, and I I would agree, it's a nice way to say it, but what we should really be saying is 2020 was humiliating. It was humiliating. Has anyone ever asked you for like your most embarrassing story? I have a few, I won't share them with you now, but I've had some humiliating moments in my life. And I think the reason these memories are so bad and they stick with us for so long is because they reveal us as vulnerable. The majority of these stories showcase our imperfections, our inadequacy, our our weaknesses, our insufficiency. And this past year has done all of that. Just taking the coronavirus as an example, it has revealed that we are not immortal. We are finite creatures pervious to sickness and disease. That's kind of humiliating when you think about it. All that humankind has accomplished and something we can't even see can quickly alter our health. I heard a pastor once say that circumstances are humiliating, but only you can humble you. The cross was a humiliating experience, but Jesus chose to be humble through it. And we can do the same in our lives. You can choose to be humble in your service, but it will require a sacrifice. The truth is not many of us would disagree with the idea that serving others is an important part of our lives. However, the issue that arises in my heart, and maybe in yours as well, is that when it starts to become a sacrifice, service kind of starts to lose its luster. I've been working on this with my kids a bit. I have, I have three kids, uh, two boys and a baby girl. And uh, my boys are five and three. And so they're old enough now that we're starting to get deep into this idea of selfishness. <laughs> and the idea of being willing to serve others at a point where it would be a sacrifice to them. Mason's the oldest and he started to realize that he's, um, he knows more than Jackson, who is three. And the other day, uh, Jackson's playing uh, with a remote control excavator that they got, right? You know, all the things you get on Christmas, these these kids are excited about it. This thing's pretty sweet. It drives forward and backwards. The bucket lifts up and down. It's got lights. It makes sound. I mean, I picked it out just so I could play with it. This thing is awesome. And so here's Jackson playing with this remote control excavator and around the corner, uh, Mason comes. And I'm in the other room and I I hear this exchange and I know exactly what's happening. Mason sees that Jackson has this and realizes that is a pretty sweet toy. I would love to play with that. But he's smart enough now in his life to know that if he just goes over and rips it away from his brother, um, that's not gonna go well for him. There's gonna be consequences. And so he devises a plan. He goes over and he finds another toy, which is uh, this smaller little crane truck that's not remote controlled, and the crane's like half snapped off, and he starts to play with it and go, Jackson, look how amazing this crane truck is. Don't you, look, you can take this part that's not broken, you can like hook it onto stuff and play with it. Oh, do you want to play with this? And in Jackson's innocent sweet mind, he says, oh man, my brother is serving me. 
by showing me how, and said, yeah, I, I do want to play with that. And the minute that Jackson touched the other toy, Mason goes, well, you can't have both. You can't play with both, so I'm going to play with this one. And took the excavator for himself. And it only took about 10 seconds for Jackson to kind of go, I think I just got duped. And, you know, some uh, voices were raised and all of that. And I entered the situation. I had heard the exchange, and I kind of let it play out. And I said to Mason, Mason, you can't do that to your brother. That's not fair. And he goes, but, Dad, I brought him another toy. And I had to kind of pause because he wasn't wrong. In his five-year-old mind, he had served his younger brother by giving him a replacement. But he didn't sacrifice his own desire to play with the toy that was better and to make sure his brother was having as much fun as he was. Because serving is, is one thing, but sacrifice is another. But the reality is this is an important resolution we, we need to make as well if we're going to have success in the new year. We need to pursue sacrifice over satisfaction. I will pursue sacrifice over satisfaction. See, satisfaction comes from serving and feeling like I got something in return. Sacrifice comes from serving and expecting nothing in return. I just, I just want to pause and say that this is probably one of the most difficult things to navigate through in the Christian life. Because opportunities to serve will be presented to you as a follower of Christ time and time again. If you're a part of this local church, you will have opportunities to serve. If you're involved in the Christian community, you will have find opportunities to serve. But only you can choose if you're going to sacrifice. Maybe you sign up to serve at church, but only in this area. Even though you know they need people in that area, but that would take more time, more commitment, more preparation. And so you're, you're just more comfortable. You're going to stay in that spot. Oh, I'm coming for some people today. Or maybe you've been in a small group for a number of years and your leader has mentioned time and time again that, man, you're getting bigger and you really need some people to step up and go through the leader training so that they can multiply out and have more room to make disciples. But you're like, man, then people would have an expectation that I'd be prepared and I'd lead a discussion. That sounds like a lot of work, so I'm just going to keep attending. Or maybe you've heard about all the opportunities with local or global missions and you start to count the cost and you're like, man, that would really affect a couple items in the budget that I like that are there. So I'll keep the card up on the refrigerator and I'll pray when I remember. Listen, I'm preaching to myself here as much as I'm talking to you. As a pastor who works for a church, I need to remind myself that service does not automatically equal sacrifice. When I think about the army of people within our own church that work 40 plus hours a week at their job and then they come and they give 10 or more hours a week to serve the church, I'm reminded and convicted that I need to pursue sacrifice over my own satisfaction. If I want to have the kind of success that Jesus says is the kind of success we should have, I need to pursue sacrifice. So let's get practical for a second. Here's how we can serve sacrificially. Three things. Number one, serve in secret. Matthew 6 says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. 
Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I need to hear this as much as you do right now. Everything you do doesn't need to be seen or heard. There's a quote that goes something like this. As soon as you start talking about how humble you are, you're not. The same is true about sacrificial service. If you serve and you immediately start looking around to see who has noticed or who will encourage you to keep on serving and um, give you such admiration and, oh, you're so accomplished in your faith with Christ, you've received your reward. No, we need to spend more time serving in a secret place that will never be known by anyone or that we would ever care if anyone found out because our Father sees our sacrifice in secret and he will reward us. Serve in secret. Second one on how to serve sacrificially is to serve difficult people. Luke 6, Jesus says this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We all know that it's, it's easy to serve people that we like their personalities or they have good charisma or will express gratitude or probably return the favor at some point. But can we all agree that it's really hard to serve the person who kind of acts like they don't even want to be served in the first place? Maybe the person who doesn't express gratitude at all or critiques the way you're serving them or if you needed something, they're nowhere to be found. and Man, wow, I'm reminded right in this moment, I need to tell my wife that I love her for how often she serves me and my family with no gratitude, where I probably come in and critique the way that she has served our family. God bless my wife. But Jesus says it's easy to serve those who love you and do good to you. Even sinners will do it. Even unbelievers People who don't follow Jesus, that's just a natural thing to do. Of course they would do that. But the key to sacrificial service is serving difficult people. And then this last one is this, serve when it hurts. Galatians 6, 2-3 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It's easy to serve people when things are going well. Take this example. Maybe a family has a new baby. It's, it's an easy service to come and bring them a meal. Because, yeah, maybe there's some hard days <laughs> when you bring an infant home, but the overwhelming sense is joy. And the door is opened with smiles, and meal, meals are <laughs> embraced with gratitude and eaten ravenously. And there's cuddles with the baby and sweet oohs and ahs. And... But what's difficult is to bring the meal to the family who just had the stillborn. 
And the, the door is answered with sunken, swollen eyes that can't find tears anymore. And the meal is received, but it will sit uneaten on the counter because there's no appetite. And there's no baby to hold, so you hug the mother and you whisper, I'm so sorry. I remember my first hospital visit as a pastor. Um, no, most hospital visits aren't um, easy at all, but, but this, my friend, who worked at the church I was attending as well, had received a call in the middle of the night that her father had been in an accident with a semi-truck. He was on life support, and it didn't look good. Devastating, sudden, the kind of thing you just don't plan for. It's the call you will remember for the rest of your life. And I remember walking into the room, And nobody walks into that moment with a sense of, I got this. I don't care how much training or counseling you've done in your life. Nobody walks into that hospital with a sense of, I got this. I can do this. Such dependence on the Lord to do something, but you show up and you walk into that hard situation. And there's awkward silence and there's petty medical questions just to fill the silence. And you, you offer to fill needs like, uh, can I get you a cup of coffee? Can I get you something to eat? And you sit in more awkward silence and you pray and you read scripture because there is nothing tangible that you can do to fix the situation for the person. You cannot serve them in a way that will solve their problem. But what you can do is you can bear up under it with them. You can serve even when it hurts. Those are holy moments because we realize I can serve someone in a way that has absolutely no benefit to me and I would never want it returned. It might not be exactly that, but look for moments and opportunities in your life where serving will hurt and step into them with the same mind of Christ who sweat drops of blood in the garden and begged God to remove the service he was about to offer, but closed his prayer with a firm, not my will, but yours be done, and then rose and walked confidently into the greatest act of sacrificial service ever performed. And then this is how Paul closes his poem, his exaltation of Jesus Christ and the new def definition of success that we have discovered today. Verse nine of Philippians two says this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the climax. This is the culmination, the grand finale of how Jesus redefined success in this life and on this earth. Because of his humility and his willingness to sacrificially serve us by his death, it says that God has placed Jesus in the highest place of honor. The highest position with the highest name so that the whole world would see and know that this is what success looks like. 
It's not the richest person in the world. It's not the most powerful leader. It's not the greatest entrepreneur. No, it is the crucified Savior on a cross. This is success. It looks like Jesus dying in our place, willingly, humbly. Here's the last resolution you and I need to make to have success in the new year. I will desire God's supremacy over my status. To the glory of God has to be the greatest motivation of every successful servant. Jesus did not come as a child and empty himself and climb onto the cross in your place and empty himself of all the benefits and privileges that he was worthy of so that he would receive the glory. No. He did it all so that his father would be glorified. And this glory that God receives comes through the salvation of God's people through that sacrifice Jesus made. The secret to success in this life is serving others. But the secret to success in eternity is surrendering myself to God's supremacy. It's taking everything you desire, your dreams, your goals, your status in this life and laying it down and picking up the banner of Jesus to declare that his name is above every other name. He alone is worthy. He alone is holy. He alone gets the glory. Let that change your definition of success this year and your success in the years to come for the rest of your life. Your success in the new year will depend on your resolution to serve sacrificially and desire God's supremacy above all else. I pray that you'll do it. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we want to give you all the glory you deserve through the outpouring of our lives. Your willingness to give your son Jesus as a sacrificing servant and to give us a new perspective on success is one of the greatest gifts we could ever receive. So we ask here in this moment that you would change us and make us more like Jesus. That we would have the mind, the outlook of Jesus and the way we serve you and others for your glory. God, we echo John's desire that you must increase, I must decrease so that we could live our lives in a way that exalts the name of Jesus above every other name. And God, it's in that name that we pray. Amen.